First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? Hey, welcome to Then Comes What, a monthly show where we open up everything you wanted to know, and some things you didn't, about love, sex, marriage, children, manhood, womanhood, and more. I, of course, Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. That's Jacob Menzel right there. How you doing, Jake? Good. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing fantastic. And Pastor Tim is right over there. We are going to ask him a question right now. Hey everybody, welcome to Then Comes What. We have a special guest. We have Pastor Jacob Menzel and Pastor Tim Bailey, as always. We also have Associate Pastor of Trinity Reformed Church, Pastor Max Carell. Thank you for joining us today, Max. Pleasure to be here. And today we are going to talk about a question I'm super excited about, and I'm actually going to make a confession here. We are, I think I think it'll be helpful for people to know, we are redoing this episode. We did a version of this episode that we didn't like. We thought... We can do a better job on this, actually. Yeah, and let me say that the problem was me, and uh, I just shared with Jake and Nathan a text. I'd asked Mary Lee to listen to it when we got up this morning, and she sent me a text, and what she put into words is exactly how I felt about it. I just felt that I had done a very, very bad job and had not, I think the principal thing was that I was not sympathetic to the difficulty of the subject. and tried to be a blowhard and bluster my way through it. (laughs) And so I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about the extra work it's caused you, Nate, and Jake. And it was my idea to bring David in because I think David often has more compassion than I do for the difficulty of being parents. Well, this is a, this is a tough subject. So let's, let's, let's get into it. The question is, how do you have the talk. How do you talk about sex with your children as as a mother or father? I think a lot for a lot of people, the question first is when do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that will have a lot of bearing on how you do based on how old the child is. You know, what, one of the things that I said when we recorded this the first time is that I don't remember my dad having a talk with right. me. I remember me multiple talks at various stages. Um, <laughs> I only remember one talk and it was horrible. So why don't I lead out with that story? Because that was probably my only good contribution last time. <clears throat> so I was probably in fifth or sixth grade and I had to drive with my dad every morning four miles to the end of the bus route for the school I attended and uh, went through farmland. And we were driving, it's probably 6.15, 6.30 in the morning. And we went by a farm on the right and I looked over and there was one cow with its uh, four feet, you know, on the back of another cow. And I looked over at my dad and I said, hey, dad, look, two cows are fighting. <laughs> there was absolute silence and the silence had the feel that it was a silence that should make me realize that I had stepped in it. And then immediately it hit me <laughs> that they weren't fighting, you know. <laughs> well, my father felt the pain of the moment and he sort of managed to say, uh, Tim, uh, you, you know, those cows aren't And I didn't even let, he was going to say, you know, those cows aren't fighting, but I didn't even let him get it out of his mouth. I just said, yeah, 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 I know, dad. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, you know. And that was the only conversation that I ever had with my father about the birds and the bees. And that's how you shouldn't do it. (laughs) 
I think people are terrified because they don't want to have these discussions with their kids. But if if you have to have a motivation to do it, you have to realize your child, our children, are getting instructed in sex and in sexuality long before we even start being nervous about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And so I think, Tim, you just said you were in fifth grade, something like. Mm-hmm. I was introduced to pornography at a birthday party in third grade. Mm-hmm. And all the misinformation of our childhood starts mm-hmm. very, very early. And it's a good motivator for parents to say, I don't want my child to get the wrong information. So I'm going to make sure they get the right information and preempt the strike because yeah. the strike's going to come. Yeah, I feel uptight you saying preempt because I don't think we ever preempt because sexuality, this is something I try to say over and over again to people, sexuality is life. There is no life without sexuality. The minute the child comes out of the womb, you know, we recently had a grandchild born that they chose not to know the sex of the child before it was born. And that was always the way it was. The minute that child is born, everybody in the room wants to know what is it. And Mm -hmm. this particular doctor said to my son, uh, Dad, look down and tell us what it is. So I don't think we can ever preempt nature. Certainly we can't preempt. If our children observe nature in any intimate way ever, it's right there in front of them. But then you talk about playing cards. You talk about the internet. You talk about the ads you know, that come up in internet, you talk about the language, you talk about shows that they might say, you talk about songs, you know, even if they listen to Louis Armstrong, they, (laughs) they learn about sex. Mm -hmm. So probably I would prefer to say, instead of preempting, that we are positive about sex. And by that, I mean that we don't allow the perversion of sex, which is everywhere, to cause us to not be Uh, generous and joyful about sex. And I think so often as Christians, that's the way we respond. You know, we get all stingy about it and prudish and everything. When the fact is we're the only people that actually enjoy sex because we're the only people that actually like fruitfulness and not merely stingy eroticism. Well, so taking what you just said to be the truth, why isn't it more natural for people to have this conversation? Why is this, why is everybody going to want to listen to this episode and finally get it all figured out? Why are so many people going to feel nervous? And, you know, this is like a, what's the word? This is, this is a, this is a clickbait episode, right? This is Mm -hmm. like, people are going to want to listen to this because they don't feel at all secure. They don't feel at all. They feel all kinds of pressure. They feel pressure. They feel, I dare say guilt. Mm -hmm. They feel all kinds Mm -hmm. of things, almost none of them positive at -hmm. first blush. What's the disconnect? If we really are the people that enjoy it, shouldn't it just be the natural overflow of our lives? Well, okay. So let's look at the issue of effeminacy. Uh, I've been tweeting about it, and I think I'm up to almost 100 tweets on it now. And so what everybody wants to say is effeminacy is what gay men are. But the fact is, every man is effeminate in, in multiple areas of his life, if effeminate means he's soft when he should be hard. And by hard, I don't mean angry. I just mean he says no to himself. That's sort of my definition of hardness. And so when you put sexuality, which has such horrible memories for so many of us, let's be honest, inside mm-hmm. the church, I just got off the phone with a, a pastor, he and his elder, we've talked a number of times in the last couple of months, and they're dealing with incest at the center of their church, and it's horrible. 
We've had that at our church. Every church has it. Lots of pastors avoid dealing with it. So you think about how many people, even as children, I mean, today, you know, the problem isn't Playboy cards. The Playboy thing is almost innocent today. You look at the internet, you look at incest, you look at child sexual abuse, you look at uh, children that grow up seeing their parents not love each other. You think of all the things that conspire together to make parents have a guilty conscience as they try to introduce their children to the beauty of sex that, that God created. Well, and I want to make it sound, I'm sorry to interrupt, I just want to, it's even more prosaic than what you just said. I think when I grew up, you know, I, I didn't suffer childhood sexual abuse per se, and not what people would think, but MTV was always on and that was just, just selling sex 24 mm-hmm. seven. That's mm-hmm. all they do. I would go to my cousin's house and they'd have, you know, Friday the 13th movies would just be playing in the background as the as the family did Thanksgiving. You know, they just have mm-hmm. violently pornographic movies. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's one of those things that uh, even in the quote unquote normal, boring life, you're just inundated with it and you feel guilty about it. Well, I still think that the real issue is our own sin. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I, I don't want to be. But I think it's our own sin that makes us fearful of talking to our children about sex. Mm -hmm. So even as you're talking, you're talking about MTV, you're talking about your cousins. I think about you growing up and how often did you see there being something approximating when a man loves a woman between your dad and mom? And think of the guilty conscience both of them would have that they're not presenting the beauty of marital love to their children that they should have. And I don't say this to hurt your feelings or theirs. So I I don't know, Nathan. Um, It just seems like very few things are as much influenced by our own sin as our ability to cast a vision for biblical sexuality and for the beauty of it and the glory of making love. I'm not sure why. It may be that nakedness is so central. It may be that rarely is a man is aware of the sort of guttural earthiness of his existence as this, and he's ashamed of that. I don't know. Maybe couples' parents are themselves in bondage to misinformation, and they don't know how to tell their children the truth. They think about sex as, and and it has not been sanctified in their own lives, Hmm either through demonstration of being fruitful or just real commitment and love. Mm. And they've suffered, and as you said, with their own sins. If a man is still looking at pornography and he's married, he's still in bondage to a lie. And so how does that man have the freedom to go to his son and instruct his son Mm -hmm. in the realities Mm -hmm. of sexuality when he himself is still constrained mm-hmm. by the lies that he's subject to. Yeah, he doesn't really believe in the beauty of it or the danger of it. And the and he is conflicted for sure because yeah. he's he knows he, he feels his own guilt. <clears throat> you said the beauty of it. And I know that people are probably not going to appreciate us saying this, but I do not see any way of teaching our children about sex without having the entry point be fruitfulness. And I think a lot of parents would say, well, you don't need to get into that. That's for later, you know, like when they're going to get married and deciding whether or not to use birth control. But if you don't teach sex as essentially being God 
having himself in the Trinity and having created a world that fruitfulness is the very center of life for animals, for trees, for men and women. And if we try to reduce sexuality to being sort of a mutual masturbatory eroticism that sometimes is a lifestyle option, we'll have children out of it. Yeah. Well, imagine how parents like that are going to approach the discussion. They're going to be as tight and prudish and stingy in talking about this to their kids as they are in their own marriage bed. So starting with fruitfulness in all of creation is a good place for a parent to I'm, begin the instruction, and it's, it's where do, so sweet. Where do babies sweet. come from? Yeah, it's so sweet to see to see that you're able to talk to your child about the abundant fruitfulness of the world, and then relate it to the fruitfulness of, of man as God has made us. And the fruitfulness of the church and evangelism mm -hmm. in baptizing and or dedicating the children and calling God to be their God also. So the church is fruitful, the tr Jesus Christ came and was used by his father to, to produce the fruit of many brothers. And then, you know, you go into one of my griefs as a pastor. You know, I had the privilege of growing up around, at various times, around farms and farm animals and dairy. And then was a pastor in a farm community. And it just grieves me a few people today. And I'm not trying to create more reform people who have some romantic notion of being agrarian and moving into the country. I hate that. It just reminds me of the sort of intentional Christian community of back in the 70s. It's, it just always blows to smithereens because it's a wish dream, and God smashes our wish dreams, right? But having said that, it grieves me how few people today have any exposure to birds, to bees, to cattle, to breeding, to uh, death, to butcher, you know, seeing the goats hanging from the ceiling of the, of the milk parlor, and these Sicilian dudes with long knives in their mouth taking apart the body and the carcass and then putting the intestines up to their mouth and blowing all of the you-know-what out of the intestine so they could use this as sausage casing. <laughs> and you just think of all this stuff was just normal life for everybody in Scripture. And it's all through Scripture. And so fruitfulness, we don't see today because the closest most of the people in our churches get to fruitfulness is maybe having a cat spade. Mm. And our children need to hear us not just celebrate fruitfulness and intimacy, but they need to know that we are the source of the truth. That if they're going to know the truth, it's going to come from us, and it's going to be something that comes with with no shame, without, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. it's just confident. And yep. if you want to know what's what, you come to me and talk about what's what. Yep. I'm not afraid to talk to you about this, yep. because your friends are just going to tell you misinformation because all the world knows is false intimacy. Well, and I think you do have to teach your children that everybody in the world is going to teach them that there is such a thing as an ability to separate sex from fruitfulness. And to me, if we're not starting with animals and birds and bees, what's the word for when a, what a de, uh, pollinize or pollinate, excuse me, yeah. Poll pollinate, yeah. <laughs> then we are behind the eight ball, you know, like you were saying at the very beginning. But I, I would like to hear you talk about, I don't know, if, was it Peter? Yeah. Uh, not long ago, I had the explicit 
version of the talk was with Peter, and it came up naturally, and I'd been planning. We should say Peter's your son. He's Peter's 11. my son. He's 11 and a half, going into the middle, into middle school, middle school youth group, sixth grade this fall. And so I've been planning to talk to him more explicitly about these sorts of things, knowing that he's going to be now with you know sixth through eighth graders. His body's going to start to change. All that sort of stuff is going to start to 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 happen, and um, people are going to be talking about things at school, even if it's a Christian school. And so I'd been waiting for the right time to have it. And then uh, he came home from youth group, one of the first times of youth group. And he had filled out a questionnaire about, is he a Christian? What does it mean to be baptized? That sort of thing. So we just started having a conversation about it. And I was asking him about his sin. What does he know of himself and his own sins? And he was giving me good answers. And at a certain point in the conversation, he said, but you know, the one commandment I really struggle with is adultery. I don't really understand if or how I've broken that commandment. And so that led into a pretty natural conversation about to talk about what sex is and how babies are made and where babies come from and the beauty of sex as God designed it and the right context and the blessings that come with it, starting with children and the dangers and curses that come with sex in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways, all the ways that the world is broken today because of people who who don't understand the dangers of sex. Pretty frank, straightforward conversation and sweet. I don't know, maybe I'm 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 weird, but I thought it was kind of fun. It's exciting to me to see my kids growing and to and be your in oldest that. son to introduce yeah. him to such a beautiful thing in your life. It was yeah, it was. I don't want to discourage anybody, but I came out of that conversation feeling like this is what I was made for, um, and really mm-hmm. grateful to God that the conversation happened so naturally mm-hmm. and was as sweet as it was. And patted him on the head and sent him to bed, and he was sort of bashfully, I'm going to have the weirdest dreams tonight, you know, kind of. (laughs) Sweet. But yeah, uh, being able to reassure him, like you were saying, I'm not afraid to talk about this stuff with you. You have questions, you have problems, you have sins, you have things that come up that I'm never going to be afraid to talk about this. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your sin. I'm not afraid of the subject. It's really important for the kids to know and understand. I always want to be careful how I talk about my dad on these podcasts, but Mm -hmm. I was on the wrong side of that in that he was simply always, I I remember one conversation about sex with him. I think he may have even initiated it, but he was very bashful the whole time as if he didn't really have any right to be telling me about this stuff. And I don't judge him for that looking Mm -hmm. back. I understand exactly how I might feel exactly the same way Mm -hmm. and I might be very, you know, who am I to be having this conversation with a kid? What do I know? I've messed everything up, you know? Not that my dad messed everything up, but, you know, I've, I, can, I can imagine bringing all my own guilt and fear, so mm-hmm. I, have, I have sympathy for that. But I can say, being on the kid's side of it, like, if he had just faked it till he made it, I, I, I would have accepted it, you know? <laughs> if he's just saying, oh, I'm, I'm your natural sovereign, here's some, mm-hmm. here's some information. Yeah. I, I don't think I would have been like, oh, well, Dad, actually, actually, you don't know about that. I can, I can tell you're, you're, you're actually a sinner, and I can see that there's guilt associated with, you know. Yeah, that's one of the things that my my dad did right with those conversations is he ne- he never made any apology about talking frankly with me about those sorts of things. And I, the kinds of things that he told me, he is, he just assumed that I was going to be having sex, right? And so he was more concerned about STDs and stuff like that. Yeah. But at least the way that he approached it made me feel like I could talk to him about things. And it didn't make me 
afraid to talk to him about anything. You know, as we're talking, because I've spent so many years counseling or, you know, doing pastoral counsel, and I'm thinking about specific individuals. And as I said earlier, not to discourage anybody, but we have to realize our churches, not their churches, our churches are filled with people who have themselves committed very serious sexual sins mm-hmm. and have themselves been raped, and that's the right word to use for a father with his daughter or son, and have been molested. It's kind of like talking about discipline of children. I, You have to start that conversation in the office with the couple by asking if either of them have been beaten by their parents. And I always ask that, and then I say, now, if you have, this is what I have to say to you. And I think in this conversation, we have to say, many of the people listening here will find they're all bollocked up trying yeah. to talk about this yeah. because of sins that have been committed against them. You know, I think about one couple where, you know, she was molested when she was a little girl, and and that kept her daughter from being able to grow up with the natural physical affection of her father because of the father being so fearful that he would set off bad memories on his wife's part. So the father was a perfect gentleman. He was not in any way abusive, but there was a distance that was created because he didn't want to cause his wife to be afraid that he would be the kind of father her father. Are, are you all with yep, me? Yep, yep. And so I think we have to address fear here. Mm. Because I think fear is such a huge part of Christians trying to do this right. Okay. Anybody who's afraid is afraid, even coming into the conversation, man, am I going to do or say something that's going to make things, am I going to open my kid up to something that's going to make things worse? That's good. Yeah. That's and right. so there is the very real fear that in having this conversation with my that's fairly innocent 11-year-old son... I'm going to awaken things in him or cause him to be curious about things that actually make the having the conversation more dangerous instead of less dangerous for him. Then there's the pressure of, man, if I'm going to have this conversation, I'm going to overcompensate and just hammer, you know. <laughs> Typically done by a mother. <laughs> that exactly. mistake. Absolutely. And, and then create this sort of taboo with the allure of the forbidden around it. Yeah. Uh, around sex that keeps it from being something that you can actually just talk about and treat like this is the way God made the world and it's beautiful and also dangerous like everything else like cliffs are beautiful and dangerous like waterfalls are beautiful and dangerous firecrackers (laughs) firecrackers well would you start with your first one and can somebody explain because I deal with that all the time in preaching we had a couple leave this last week and somebody that knew them said they thought they left because I spoke to the parents at the end of the sermon about how when your children become sexual at the beginning of puberty, yeah. that they need you to go to him and explain to them that the Christian life is a battle. Mm-hmm. And that's when the wife actually got up and left the sermon. So what is the answer to the first fear that we have? Well, it's difficult because on the one hand, the whole world is screaming to us all the time about sex and teaching our kids never stops catechizing our kids about sex. That's a good image. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, that's what it is. That's what our movies, that's what everything is catechistic. It's teaching our kids about sex. 
And we have to, the Bible does warn us against not even mentioning the things that are done in secret, right? There is a way that, or, or Galatians, be careful when you go to warn somebody about their sin lest you fall into it. There's a, a, a sense in which when we talk about sexual, sexual sin or sex in general, that we're opening ourselves or anybody else up to bad things. And it's just a dance, I think. It's very difficult to discern what to do and when. It may be a little hard to talk about because the other thing that's true is that every kid is different. What they know, what they understanding, their self-awareness is different. Uh, Yeah, but let me push, push this a little bit. Again, isn't it true if we had all grown up on a dairy farm, that our wives would not be having hissy fits that maybe one of their kids would see the cows doing it in the pasture. Right? Yeah, we would be able to treat it as prosaic in a, to a degree. And so go back to the issue of us having talks with our kids. I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. What, because it almost well, sounds you know as if really you think, think is, we shouldn't do it. No, based well, on that's what you not just what said. I think. What I think is, what I really think is that at the end of the day, we have to have, and this is why people get up in knots about it. I think we have to have clean hands and a pure heart. I think mm-hmm. that we have to have a good understanding, mm-hmm. a healthy understanding of sexuality ourselves. We need to not be coming into these conversations with our kids with our own lusts okay, being sparked on, on the second. one hand or our own fears r- ruling yeah, the conversation. Yeah, but hold on a second. Yeah. So you look at an example where a little girl grew up being yeah. raped by her father, yep. okay? And this is all over the place. Don't anybody listening think that you don't know anybody like this. Don't ever yep. say that to me because it will just irritate me and irritate my wife even more because of how much of our work we do with situations. Now, what about that person? Yep. How do they ever come with clean hands? How do they ever lie in bed but, naked with their yeah. husband and feel clean? Yeah. Well, that's a big question. But the thing that I thought when Jake said, did I corrupt Peter in some way is, yeah, probably. Do you have faith for it or not? He has his own internal corruption, right? Where the law comes in, sin comes in. Do you have clean hands in this issue? No, you do not have clean hands. One way or another, I mean, this is such a, this is such a, this is a topic there's just it's, sex is there's just an infinite amount of ways it can go wrong. Well, that's exactly right. right. That's right. And and you know, oh, not getting man. off the railroad tracks is a decision too, right? So there's the the dangers of never uh, taking those risks and knowing when to take those risks with your kids and knowing that yeah, this is. You but know. you don't you don't have the option to tap out though. If you tap out, then the world just takes over one way or another your kids are getting catechized in sexuality. Right. So it's not like there's this this option where you don't do something. To, to not do something is to do something exactly. profound. Exactly. Well, there's truth and there's confidence in it, confidence in what you know and confidence in what God's word says, the reality, the truth of how we're made. But then there's also faith that you have to have to address all of this truth with your children yep. in your own heart, knowing that you're, as you said, Nathan, somebody said, knowing that your child has a corrupt heart yep, mm-hmm. and that you have to present the truth to them. The great thing is it's their father or their mother that's presenting this truth. And it's amazing that that carries more with it if you have a good relationship with your children than the entire world. Yep. 
and yet many people listening to this as 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 Jake was describing talking to Peter and I was picturing Amanda his wife and and what people don't know is that Amanda is very feminine and she loves her children her husband and she has a husband who's very masculine and loves his wife and his children and so when you think of Peter growing up in a home of love and compare that to the home you grew up in Nathan and I'm not I'm just being very clear in saying the home you grew up, you did not see that. You didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Many people listening. People should understand that is simply a almost clinical statement. It's just a statement of a fact. And I'm not. Yeah, it is it. a statement of fact. And, and so what we have to realize is that for many people, they're not going to have the beauty of the mental home and the fruit that beauty has produced because on various levels, Satan will have destroyed much of the beauty of that Christian home. It doesn't make it less Christian. And so to those people, I think what you said earlier was so helpful to me, Nate, because you were talking about how sin, the law increases sin, okay? Mm -hmm. The law exacerbates sin. The law causes the opportunity for a mother, now listen to this, for a mother to have even more fears about the souls of her children than she had Mm -hmm. before the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe the issue isn't so much how clean our hands are going in. I wonder whether the issue is whether we have faith for God's forgiveness for our sin and therefore for God's forgiveness and sanctification of our children. I wonder whether that isn't the reason the conversation is so hard is because maybe many of us are sort of cynical about God's ability to purify sexual sin in ourselves and in others. I remember years ago when Mary Lee and I had a very difficult situation in our church, terrible sexual sin, and we got home and Mary Lee looked at me (laughs) and she, and Mary Lee is, you know, pretty tough cookie as women go, you know. And we got home and she looked at me and she said, why did God make sex? (laughs) (laughs) And I think for a lot of people, they would like to keep their children asexual for as long as they possibly can because they don't have faith for their children's souls in the face of the terrible perversion of sex today. And it is true. You explain sex to them and that in itself, as you acknowledged in describing your time with Peter, um, that in itself is going to cause there to be more opportunities for Absolutely. your child to be corrupt. Yep. And probably, not to be a thoroughly cynical, nasty person, probably to be corrupt in whatever way you are. Like, right. it's not just generic corruption, it's Jake's uh, corruption. You'll see yourself yep. in your children. Yeah. You, you infected him because how could you not? But you have to have faith for doing your work as a father. And Yep. It's okay. Well, it creates opportunities for faith on the part of us towards our children, our children towards God, Mm -hmm. that we did not have prior to that conversation. More opportunities for the child to be corrupted. Also, though, the prophylactic to that child's actions. In other words, the temptations that our children face, they can face much better with the truth. The temptations are coming one way or another. They're coming one way or another. Right. And this way, we, they have the truth to, that arms them, protects them, mm-hmm. that they can fight with. We don't know if they'll fight. Mm-hmm. That's the faith part. 
that's the heart part that mm-hmm. we pray that God will regenerate and give them the fight. But to arm them, that's our job. We can't yeah. we can't change their heart, but we can arm their heart. And like with everything else, a lot of what we arm them with are the the blessings and the curses, the promises and the warning. And if we want to be antiseptic, not have the conversation, suppress it, deny the constant influx of perverted sexual information enticements our children are getting on every level. If we want to be truly prudish, truly bury our heads in a sand, what I think it would help us all to ask ourselves is how much righteousness in our lives has come because of our repentance of sexual sin? Mm-hmm. What precious shame God has given us because of our sexual sin, which has left us despairing of there being any hope for us other than Jesus Christ. And you know, you don't want to give your children opportunity to commit sexual sin so that they can really have shame and <laughs> Shall come we to sin Jesus. So that grace may abound. Yeah. Shall we set our children up to sin no. so that grace may abound? <laughs> but we should recognize the degree to which God uses sexual sin in Absolutely. our lives to produce unbelievable growth in well, faith and repentance. In a culture like ours, what else is going to be at the forefront of any gospel ministry? And what's going to be at the forefront of anybody's minds when they think about the grace of God to them? I mean, we live in a sex-saturated, sex-obsessed culture. That's it. That's the forefront of the fight for all of us. And it's the forefront of the fight. It's been, I don't want to pretend like sex hasn't been, sex is like you said, at the heart of who we are. Mm-hmm. Right, the heart of the way God made us. So, of course, it's always been at the heart of the fight for man, especially today in our culture. And we try not to use the word sex because it makes us think of body parts. But again, I want to acclimate people listening to the fact that we try to use the word sex so that the issue of manhood and womanhood is always connected to body parts because that's the Christian truth. We're yeah. not gender fluid beings, we're sexual beings. Yes, and it makes you think that parents have to be able to say penis and vagina. Yep. And not think of them in the corrupted way that they thought of them when they were being corrupted in the third grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But think of them in the way that God has designed us for fruitfulness. <laughs> so, which takes it takes faith to say the word penis for some people. It's weird, <laughs> but <laughs> well, it does. It's not weird, really. But it's it's the reality of how you're going to talk. Finally, you're going to talk very specifically to your children, and they have to hear the right terms, and they have to have an understanding of it, and it has to be. But it's it's beyond clinical, right. because it's spiritual. You know, I'm I'm thinking about working with your son, and you know, I hope everybody <laughs> does better job than I did working with my sons. But anyhow, shout out to you, Joseph and Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you're working on most basic things like your lawnmower, you have a male and female. And that presents you an opportunity to explain to them that what if I was trying to screw this screw into this bolt and the screw turned into a marshmallow, how much success would I have? Well, that's when a penis is not erect. But when a penis is erect, then you have success in mating it with its female. And that's how God exchanges the different parts of human beings, the, the, the egg and, and the sperm, with each other. And those parts are to teach you something about what it means to be a man and a woman, which is a man is not much use if he isn't firm, 
and a woman is not much use if she isn't receptive. That should be part of our incidental conversation with our children when when we're working together. It's not difficult. The whole world uses male and female. Well, you got the female, you got the male, you know. You either have these conversations, what's the word? Uh, organically. Organically and incidentally and informally. And you, when you see a chance, take it. Well, how much is too much? How much is too much what? Um, uh, I presumably shouldn't just be turning everything into a sex metaphor with my kid. Well, I think that is in many ways age specific. Mm -hmm. So with very young children, you have very limited things, general things. A lot of it is just sort of like laying groundwork type stuff, right? So like if you're going to talk, you can talk about the male end of something and the female end of something with your five-year-old without telling him by male end, we mean penis and by female end, we mean vagina. But later on, when he starts to put things together and you help him put things together explicitly, suddenly things are going to click and he's going to start to see it everywhere because you've been speaking frankly, the way that we all speak about these words. Yeah, I want to, you won't be surprised to know, I want to double down on this a little bit because yes, you're absolutely right. You wouldn't say that to a five-year-old. You wouldn't talk about a penis needing to be erect in order to get inside. And yet, one of the mistakes I see parents making all the time is that they have a 16-inch softball served up to them. Yeah. They're at the plate. They have the bat, and they never swing. They feel like you have to be dealing with a perfect situation at a perfect time with all the kids having had the proper nap right. in order to, to instruct them or discipline them. Mm -hmm. The same thing's true about sex. Look, God provides all kinds of examples, and to me, a good example is a nut and a bolt. You are presented by God throughout your home, throughout work, throughout vacations, with a panoply of opportunities. I think the thing that people have trouble with is the specificity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the right time in your child's life, they need specificity. Yeah. And the reality of training your son, I mean, okay, new word. Training your son so that he understands an erection, is that wrong to do? I mean, he's going to have one, and he's going to wonder what in the world is going on. Mm -hmm. And for you to use and understand that opportunity to teach your son so that he's not linking to himself, what is wrong with me? Yeah, one of the things I wish I had known more about when I was raising our children is the importance of making them see their body parts as teaching them what they are to be as men and women. I just think that's a foundational truth that God has given us. It's visible in the tiniest children in the bathtub. Uh, children are much more aware of that difference. They want to know why he has that, and I don't have that. It's natural. All the children ask it. And so we need to take these opportunities and not be psycho about them. Mm -hmm. Just be matter-of-fact about yep. them. But I think being matter-of-fact about it, not being ruffled, not grabbing our skirts, and not coming down with hammers is really the right approach. Yeah. Remember that Augustine says that being a child is agony. Mm -hmm. And it's because you never stop working to instruct, to discipline, to exhort, to encourage, and sex. You just don't lose opportunities. Yeah. So in the full scope of all of our discipline, teaching, and instruction, we just can't lose 
the opportunities to talk to our kids about sex and sexuality. It's not well, something that... Look, how pervasive is sex and sexuality and the lies concerning it? How pervasive is false intimacy? How pervasive are these things in the world? And are we just going to say, well, you know, we can't really talk about that. It's, it's ludicrous to think, as, as you were saying earlier, if our children are being catechized constantly mm-hmm. with perversions. And that's such a good way to put it. The world never stops catechizing our children and their religion, which is the unorgasmic life is not worth living. You know, it's interesting. Spurgeon had people complain to him about preaching against fornication. And uh, yeah, I remember this. You remember this? Well, one? no, I wasn't there personally. But. I, yeah, I hear this story, <laughs> uh, or I hear this same line, and I've heard it attributed to Luther and all kinds of different people, and it's fornication subbed in and out. I want to, I want to track down the real original source. So you've looked for it and you haven't found it. No, I've, I've heard it all kinds of things like, why do you preach the gospel every week? Well, when you walk in here and start believing it, and that's attributed to Luther and then what, fornication. Well, to... uh, yeah, Luther would have said that, and it may be because it's so Maybe constant. Maybe Spurgeon just It's so actually... constant for pastors to have certain people in their church that think that they do a better job of choosing the food that the congregation eats than the pastor, the yeah. shepherd. Yeah. Well, what, what is the Spurgeon line? Well, the Spurgeon line I've always heard is they complain, and I'm sure it was a woman, you know, that why why do you preach so much about fornication? He said, well, when you start stop doing it, I'll stop preaching about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think about that all the time, not the Spurgeon quote, but I think about that all the time preaching because, you know, we often do have homeschooling mothers in our church listening, and I am aware of the degree to which homeschooling mothers have their reason to exist bound up with protecting their children from all the evil influences of the culture. But those evil influences, you know, I remember one homeschooling mother calling from a church I'd spoken at uh, the previous year at a conference, and she said, she called my wife and me one night from across the country. She said, I found my teenage boy in the room with our daughters last night. So immediately, Mary Lee and I asked, started asking diagnostic questions. They didn't have a pastor at the time. They were with a, without a pastoral call at that time. You know, we asked about their marriage. We asked about their husband. We asked about computers. We asked all these diagnostic questions. Finally, we got to asking her about her childhood. And it turned out that she and her sisters had basically been involved sexually with each other. And I mean, this didn't come out until a lot of the diagnostic questions were asked. And at that point, I stopped the conversation. My wife was actually the hound dog that pulled it screaming into the open. She was the one that saw a tell in, in a certain give and take. In that. And, and I said to her, so, I said, here you are, so determined to protect your children from evil influences from the outside. But as it turns out, the evil influence in your home is yourself. And you are the one that has corrupted your home. And later, she actually said to us, well, I thought a lot of kids, you know, growing up that they, they, they experiment with each other sexually and stuff. And so she has had a terrible sin become normal to her. And now she wants to know why her children are doing the same thing, right? 
And I think about this all the time while I'm preaching, where if I raise the issue of sexuality, specifically lesbianism, homosexuality, LGBTQ, whatever, I'm aware that there are parents, and particularly mothers, who are uptight about that and think that I am going to scandalize their children, that I am going to cause their children to become homosexual, right? And yet the same mother you go to Sam's Club in Bloomington, and guess what? You're in line next to a lesbian couple who's like doing PDAs, and it looks as butch as butch can be, is a complete assault against everything that is good and right and beautiful that God made sexuality to be. And that mother will not have any awareness and will not think her son has any awareness of what he's standing next to and what's going on right next to him. So I want to really push on this issue that what you have said, and, and David, what you have reiterated is, there is no place where our children aren't sexual themselves, and there is no place where they are not being catechized. And so we don't live in the Garden of Eden. God has made clothing for us, and he's killed, and there's been blood to make that clothing for us. That's how radical... The fall is, original sin is, and that's the world your children live in. I'll never forget when Mary Lee gave birth to one of our children. I don't remember which one it was, but I remember seeing the agony of birth and seeing this precious child come out of her womb and realizing the part I had in putting my wife through that agony. And then all of a sudden, I remembered this line from Lucretius, who I've never read, but I know the line. And Lucretius says that the wail of the newborn is, is mingled with the dirge for the dead. And I realized at that moment that birth and death are two sides of the same coin, and that when we make love to our wives, and our wives give birth. Our wives die to give birth to a child. They shed their blood. It is horrible, the pain of childbearing. Don't let anybody. God said it. It's true. But then even as the child comes out, immediately as a father, you have wash over you all of the battles against sin. Not You're not sitting there thinking, he'll fall and skin his knee. What you're thinking is he is going to have to face his own depravity. Mm. And this is human nature. And you have to have faith for this from the moment of birth there with your wife. It is an act of faith to have children and to make fruitful love. And that's the reason why we try to, try to contracept it. We try to limit it. We try to sterilize the marriage bed. And so, look, if you've had children you're a sinner, your wife's a sinner, the child is going to be a sinner, and we have to have faith for sexual sin if we are going to have children, okay? And there's no way to escape it. We have to live by faith there, too. It's hard to, for a, a, a mother who thinks that they have protected their children from everything possible, every possible threat, to then come to the realization that the biggest threat to that child is their own heart. Mm -hmm. because that's where out of the heart is going to come every form of wickedness yes, yes. and defilement to that child. And then you're, basically they've, get, they've gotten them all uh, circled up into the little you know, protective circle, and there in the protective circle are all these little evil, black-hearted, depraved, <laughs> depraved children 
And not to say God doesn't save our children, even very, very young, but to say this is the condition of our hearts, their yeah. hearts. And when and you, think of, you think of how blind so many of those mothers are to the terrible wickedness of pride that they have inculcated that child in, even at the same time as they resent the preacher from ever mentioning homosexuality in the pulpit. It's just perverse. You know, the fact is we pass on our sins. It's not just Adam that passes on his sin to our children. We pass on our sins to our children. Yep. And we have to have faith that God will be merciful to our children. This is why when my sons, I didn't do this with my daughters, I don't know why, but when my sons became adolescents, reached puberty, I would take my hands, put them on their shoulders, look at them in the eye from about three inches away, with straight as straight could be, I'd look them in the eye and I'd say, Joseph, I know that you are a terribly wicked man and I want you to know I love you. And I think it's so important that we have faith for our children's sin. I just, how can you grow up today in our world if your father doesn't have faith for your sexual sin? And, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't say anything about sex. But that's what he was thinking. Oh, of well, course. it certainly was, couldn't be, yeah. Well, I want to um, tie some of these threads together. We were talking at the beginning about fruitfulness and modeling fruitfulness what what does because I, I still think for some people that are listening some of this might all sound a little bit like an abstraction what does a happy fruitful home look like what are what is what are a mother and father to model for their children sexually the other day i was out on our back deck we have a hummingbird feeder and i watched a hummingbird fly around over to one of the flowers and poke inside the pistil of the flower to try to get some of the nectar. And I think really, again, sex is everywhere. And we have to take advantage of those opportunities to show them that God loves to create new life. Acorns, uh, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. Rain, spring, April showers bring May flowers, you know, bumblebees, the death of the bees across the United States and the havoc that's wreaking on crops. So I don't want us to lose the opportunity to be completely disconnected from the marriage bed and daddy and mommy when we first begin to teach these things, okay? Because when you start talking about your father and mother, there's a a certain tension that comes into parents and dealing with it at that point. But I and I don't know what to say about it because I, I tried saying it last time. My wife said that she thought what I said wasn't any good. And so I don't have any confidence on this. But do you mean when the when the parents are living themselves in yeah. front of the kids? Yeah. Well, you think about parents living, their child should always see the parents affectionate. Hmm. And when they're a little child, they may not register that they're observing, but they are. And then they get older and they giggle. And then they're in junior high and they cover their eyes and then they peek between their fingers. And it's all the joy of watching their parents' affection for one another. But that's just the preamble to the marriage bed. I think that the reason that Mary Lee didn't like what I said about this before is I think she said something like, there are a lot of marriages where the the interaction between the husband and wife sexually is anything but good. 
And I don't know how. I've often tried to figure out how to love my children in front of people who have been harmed by their father in such a way that they approve of me loving my children. I've been on the I've been on the nasty side of that one. You know, you're asking the question, you know, is like does is everybody going to crawl because some people are in wheelchairs kind of thing and um that's quite an image. <laughs> I, I I've I grew up in a home that wasn't good. And I would come to church, and I remember seeing specific, I can, I can tell you who the family, I won't say on air, but I remember seeing, sitting behind a family, and the father reaching up and tossing his son's hair in the middle of the service, or or maybe hmm. patting his shoulder or something like that. And I just remember gnashing my teeth. I remember being so angry and so bitter. And that was a reoccurring theme of my teenage years. I would go to people's houses who were healthy, who were normal, who were godly. And I would be absolutely miserable and I would feel so alienated and so bitter against God. Mm. And having been through that, there are sympathetic ways to deal with someone like I was and there are unsympathetic ones. But the one thing you can't do is is just sacrifice what's normal. Mm. I didn't need those people to be crippled in the same way that I was. I needed them to be health. And as much as there was a little demon inside of me that screamed against that, there was also part of me that just just fed on it and loved being in those homes. And it was good, you know? Can I insert that statement that I think is such a key to understanding the culture of the West today, which it comes from Joe Sobern, but not original with him, where he said he talks about the modern morbid habit of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal. Mm-hmm. And I think that Christians have to be very careful to not live for the insecurities and bitterness and envy of others, but to live by faith in all the good gifts that God has given us and not to be apologetic, but also not to be, what would the word be, Nate? Not to be pushing it in people's faces. In other words, not not snotty about, look at us, we're having fun. Right. Yeah. How would you describe what you were... Earlier, you made mention of it. What is it that we shouldn't do when God has given us good gifts? Parade them? There's a way to parade it. And there's a, and I've, I can think of people who, specifically when it came, will come to sex, you know, would have been very obnoxious to me in a way then that I don't have sympathy for now. That brings up a whole other part of the subject, and that is the way, because you talked about your observation Mm-hmm. But the reality was, I'm assuming you just were envious. Oh, oh, bitterly, incredibly envious of what was going on. And then you realize that we haven't even begun to talk about all of the ways that fathers and mothers appropriately touch their children mm-hmm. based on their mm-hmm. sex to help to guide them mm-hmm. to the life that they'll and to and to make them whole and to make them. Uh, sane mm-hmm. in an insane world, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we just there's there's a whole other world of talking just about that question. Mm-hmm. You just brought it up with your one object, and that's probably the most prophylactic thing that a father yeah. can do with his teenage daughters. I talk about that in Daddy Tried, where look, a father should be telling his daughters constantly that they are the most beautiful women in the world, mm-hmm. and. Every father's daughters are the most beautiful women in the world. I don't care what they look like. I don't care how they act, although yeah, I do care how they act. But uh, And we have to touch them. 
And I, it, it grieves me to see so many fathers who, as soon as their girls reach puberty, they stop touching them. And it's just crazy. I think one of the highest correlations to sexual purity is a touching relationship with your dad. And you think of how many dads wouldn't do it because of how many wicked fathers have been predators against their daughters. And it just grieves me. You know, you don't sacrifice the normal on the altar of the wicked. So, so what is the normal when it comes to touch? What kind of touches are we talking about? And Well, you can't, you know, in our home, you don't ever have your daughters in their panties or their bras, ever. That's for the bathroom. That's for the bedroom. We have a rule that you didn't keep your bedroom door shut, and it opened into the common area. And it's very possible for girls to grow up into women and not to ever have their father. I never have seen either any of my how many do I have? Two, three. I've never seen any of my daughters in a bra or panties. Never. That's, I want to start by saying there are very clear steps that you have to take to guard your home. You do not use the bathroom without locking the door, or having it shut. You don't want your brother coming in on you. Those rules need to be very objective, matter of fact, calm, and fierce. Okay. But then, as far as touching is concerned, I. I honestly don't know how a father cannot be touching his sons and his daughters all the time. You know, when we got done dinner, we'd fall on the floor before devotions, we'd tell stories, we'd laugh, we'd tell jokes. And if I had a child that wasn't touching me, I would say to that child, as a teenager, I'd say, uh, you're not touching me. And I wasn't satisfied until they moved their leg enough that it just was brushing my calf. Do you, do you understand? In other words, God has made parents want to touch their children because it's it's a good feeling, and there's nothing wrong with that in hugging. I think that we as fathers need to be touching our sons and our daughters most intensively from the time they become reach puberty. And I think the discipline can be touching. I think the love can be touching. After all, we're the ones that are going to kiss them and take their hand and give it to a man when they marry. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? So I don't know if that's helpful, but... How many times have you been at a wedding where that feels like the first kiss that's happened? Yeah, I know. Long, it's so awkward. And, and and when you're doing the rehearsal... Yeah, you have to tell the dad. It's so awful. And it's super awkward. It's so awful. and. Yeah. And your happiest weddings are when the dad cries, even at the rehearsal, he'll just cry. Mm -hmm. Especially with our teenage daughters as father, the reality of why we need to, they need to find themselves secure with us. Because if, if they don't find themselves secure with us, their desire for touch is going to be taken somewhere else. Their desire for intimacy, intimacy emotionally, yeah. their affirmation is going mm -hmm. to be taken somewhere else. Well, their insecurity. Yes. If they're not secure with us, their insecurities Every will seek out. Every teenage girl knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that she's ugly. You have to think that no matter how beautiful your daughter is, Every teenage daughter thinks that she is ugly, and it's a lie, and it's the father's job to inoculate his daughter against that lie. And he should never allow the boys to inoculate her against that lie because the boys have motives that are very different from a father's mm -hmm. motives. Exactly right. <laughs> if I may put it that way. <laughs> As it happens. As it happens. I mean, what would you say? That's is Was that what you were going to say about... Oh, absolutely. The thing is that 
I think our daughters desire to us to provide them with emotional love and care that is sufficient until which time they, by God's grace, may marry someone who then takes the place of providing that emotional love and care along with establishing a household and having children and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't do that work, our daughters feel the the deficit. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, we've been talking about teenagers, but that goes all the way down. Oh, um, yes. And it's, little what, it's little. what protects our kids from, from predators all the way down. Yes. Because the fact is kids will seek out kids who aren't receiving, little kids that aren't receiving affection will seek out or be receptive to the attentions of predators. Oh, man. <laughs> and little kids that know healthy affection from their parents will know unhealthy attention. Well, I just, my mind's exploding right now because I'm just thinking of a couple cases in our church where I watched a little girl, and we're talking about a little girl that's under five years of age, and that little girl was indiscriminate in flinging herself at people. She did not have the capacity of knowing who was family, who wasn't, who was safe and who wasn't. It was clear that she was hell-bent on getting any attention by any means she could. And I went to the parents in both cases, and I said, your daughter is very open to somebody taking advantage of her sexually. And these were little girls. Yeah. And one of the cases, the, the couple didn't, well, I don't want to go into it, but the end of the story in one of those cases is very sad. And the other one, I, I'm guessing it's sad. They've left the church at this point. But yeah, the father sets the tone for the children and their judgments of what is normal and healthy and good and what isn't. And if the father himself, I mean, I think about, you know, in counseling, marriage counseling, you're dealing oftentimes with the failures of the parents in the marriage bed of the couple you're counseling. And I remember one case where this woman, the minute her father saw that she was becoming a woman and not just a girl, he began to make fun of her. And he was relentless in telling her that she was fat, she was ugly, she was, the clothes she, were wear, she was wearing were inappropriate, but not enticing, but just he didn't like her clothes. He, he never stopped sending her messages. I, we have another couple in our church where the woman, when she was growing up, her mother was constantly calling her a slut was insulting her, was, you know, this is what she grew up with. And I know it seems crazy in a podcast aimed at Christians to be bringing this stuff up, but we have a church of Christians, and this these are the homes they grow up in. And if you as a father, I mean, how many fathers, if their children, if their daughters, now I hate to bring this up, but it has to be brought up. There are so many fathers whose goal in life is not to have to keep providing for their daughters once she becomes an adult. And so they make her get good grades. They make her go to college. They make her become a nurse. They make her become a doctor. They make her financially independent, and they will not allow her to marry or to date or to be serious about anyone until she has proven that no matter what kind of scoundrel she marries, her, 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 his daughter is going to be able to prove, and he won't have to worry about her. Okay, now you think about that. Well, those fathers don't just make them get established in a profession and put off marriage and fornicate 
Often those fathers are very happy for their daughters to fornicate as long as they get established in their profession. We see this at IU, okay? But those fathers also will do something that's equally wicked, and that is those dads will make comments about their daughter's appearance that are devastating to their daughters. And they might be a very, very um, cagey comment. But you look at the mother's face and she knows exactly what her husband is saying to her daughter. And a lot of times it has to do with things like pimples and like weight, where a father is afraid that his daughter putting on weight is going to make her unmarriageable. But his goal is for his daughter to get married and to Mm. produce grandchildren. And so this is part of sex. This is part of that question, the birds and the bees. And we as fathers, I don't know how to say it because I, I, you know, it's one of those things that's so horrible when dads do it that you don't even want to talk about it. You don't want to even see it when you see it. But no father should ever rob his daughter of confidence in her beauty. And it's so horrible when fathers try to live through their daughters uh, in a way that vicariously, you know, aspirationally, that they want their daughter, instead of being the joy of their life, their daughter is a means to an end. Do you want to say anything about that? Maybe it shouldn't be talked about. I don't know. But it is common in counseling to have to deal with that, where fathers have not love their daughters and inoculated them against thinking they're ugly, against their embarrassment about their pimples, about their weight, Mm -hmm. about their intelligence, about their beauty of body and soul. And you have to do that. There's one thing that a father should give his daughter. It is his love for his wife. Mm -hmm. And if there's two things he should give it, he should give his daughter absolute certainty that her body and soul are waiting for a man and are the perfect gift to a man. I think about how, yes, there's the wicked fathers, but then there's so many fathers that just refuse to take responsibility for how truly formative everything that they do is. I mean, if you tell your kids that it's good for there to be, for walls to be painted yellow, they'll believe you. And the reason that this is so striking to me is because I've been married for two weeks now. and (laughs) (laughs) Right on. It's like every single fight, every single negotiation, every single thing that we have to figure out is the product of something that was programmed into us. And I'm not talking about deep psychological truths. I'm talking about Meredith thinks that meat should be burned and I think that it should be rare. You know, And, and there's, there's just a million things like that. And some of them are deep and psychological and all this, but a lot of them are just prosaic things. But either way, it's like she's approaching the world with one set of assumptions. I'm approaching it with another. We both just assume that this is how the world works because it's just it's just built into us. So go back to the responsibility thing and open that up. I think what you're saying is a father is a father. A father, whether he likes it or not. That's right. He creates. He's the only world. ever a good father or a bad father, or like all of us, a somewhere in between father. The kids key off what they're, you know. It it is. I don't know how to say it. It is. It is absolutely inescapable because it's the way that God made the world, mm-hmm. and so kids are just designed to key off of what you do. And so, if you tell your kids that you don't care about them, for example, they will go through their life assuming that. Nobody cares about them Mm -hmm. because you were the primary person that should have and you didn't. And 
they assume they take as gospel what you tell them. What you communicate. What to you them. communicate well, to them without and, words. Yeah, and I want to say something here. An awful lot of the responsibility of pastors and elders and older Titus II women in church is to make those fathers begin to care about their daughters. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with fathers in our church. Whereas their daughter reaches puberty, I say to the dad, dad, this, dad, that, dad, the other thing. And I don't wait and have a family counseling session to do it. I greet everybody every Sunday and I do it in that time. It takes about 30 seconds. You can turn to the side and say it to them. That's all it needs. It doesn't need you hitting on him for an hour for not loving his daughter. Hey, you know, your daughter is beautiful, isn't she? And he'll look at me and beam, and he'll say, yes, she is. And then I say to him, how often have you told her that? Are you stopping touching her now that she has reached puberty? And then just a couple other exchanges, it's over. And the fruit, so we as pastors are fathers of fathers, Mm -hmm. and we need to use this time to help those fathers grow in their fatherhood. What I observe in these fathers so often is a kind of a shame or embarrassment, you know, like, well, why why would she care? Why would it matter that much that I thought she was fat, you know? What... Not that they would ever articulate it this way, but but they they kind of look at their feet and they just think I don't have any influence over her. Yeah, she doesn't care what I think. (laughs) I can give you five thousand examples of why that's true. She does. She's she could be the most rebellious daughter in the world, and she's still keying everything Mm -hmm. off of you because including her rebellion, including her rebellion. I don't know. It sounds like such a boringly obvious thing to say, but people don't live as if it's boringly obvious. They they live as if it doesn't matter what they do as if their children will make up their own minds, as if they should be hands-off. But you can't help, you know, we talk, keep talking about, we keep saying the word catechize. You will catechize your children. One way or another, you will catechize your children. You cannot not. If you choose not to, then that will be its own catechism, you know. Let's talk to mothers that are listening to this whose husbands are abdicators and weak. And what I would say to such women is, be very understanding of your husband's fears and weakness. Don't shame him with them. Have him listen to this. And let me say, if your wife has gotten you to listen to this, that we all are scared out of our wits at leadership and father authority. When I was doing that with Michael in the kitchen about her midriff being exposed, I mean, I knew that everybody there disapproved of me and I was scared. And so fear and insecurity and weakness are constant in the lives of of men. David, you're nodding your head. No, they absolutely are. I, uh, every step you take as a father to interact with your child and to, if you're conscious that you're doing something formative, is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You, you asked me a while ago what the difference is between the families that mm. were obnoxious in their perfection and mm. the families that the ones that God used in my life to show me what normal was because they were good, because they were godly, and the ones that looked on the outside similarly, but that God didn't use. And the difference, I think, primarily was, this touches on what, what Max was beginning to say, I think, those the families that God used were the ones that were honest about their sins and about their failures. So they didn't become this paragon of false perfection that I just wanted to vomit out of my mouth. And it wasn't that they weren't obnoxiously godly. It wasn't that, you know what I mean? Like, I still had to put up with the fact- Envy is, is still there. Yeah, yeah. I, still, I was still envious of what they had and what I didn't. But what I couldn't do 
is accuse them of, of of getting there themselves. I, I knew that they were sinners and they were failures because they just straight out said that they were. They lived their lives as sinners and as failures. And so I knew that it was God. And I knew that God had given them something that he hadn't chosen to give me right now. But I could have faith. I don't think I would have articulated it at all like this, but I could have faith for God giving them something for the good things that God had given me. Whereas if someone was just cold and proud and perfect, how could I have faith for that? I knew I was never going to be perfect. I was never going to be that. I can't enter into that. So but you might be there when when the bottom falls out of it. Right. I mean, there isn't any perfect. Right. And that's the thing. Right, the exactly. People that, the people that are going through what you were going through with the envy, for that reason and for a lot of other reasons, may look at other people and think, wow, that those people are perfect. It ain't happening. There mm-hmm. aren't any perfect people. And our observation year after year, decade after decade, is people who live with that kind of facade, there always comes a day when everything crashes down. Mm-hmm. And it's a miserable mess. That can't be overemphasized. That Mm -hmm. cannot be overemphasized. The cult of having it together and perfectionism that's among conservative reform people today is the very denial of what is the center of reform doctrine, which is that sin is really serious and really pervasive and not just with unbelievers, but with believers. Mm Mm-hmm. We have to realize that here on earth we have no abiding place. We will be, by God's grace, able to clean up a lot of the sins that our unbelieving parents made or our rebellious parents made. But we will have other sins that we will. And, and, you know, one of the worst ones, you know, is when people tell you that the the kids of your church are proud. And you think, well, I'm so successful. You know, I avoided having people divorced in our church, but all the kids are are snots. Well, it doesn't make you feel good as a pastor, as an elder, you know. Hmm. But I'm sorry, Max, I interrupted. You were, you were answering the question of, I think Tim had started to talk about families where the father had abdicated and the mother was. Because he was afraid. Because he was afraid, yeah. yeah. I think that's that's just true of us all the time. We're constantly haunted by our sins mm-hmm. and the things that we're supposed to do as fathers to claim the promises for our children, the the act the actions that are very tangible mm-hmm. that we're supposed to be about, whether it's bringing them to church, disciplining them, loving them, uh, having times of reading the Bible and prayer. All those kinds of things, we're constantly afflicted by our feelings of inadequacy and our fears. Hmm. We'd rather abdicate. So let's get real here. Am I constantly assailed by my fears and feelings of inadequacy? Uh, Only my wife knows me better than you. Am I constantly assailed by that? Are you asking me? Yes, I'm asking you. Yeah, you are. Okay, so let me, you ask me the same question. Am I constantly assailed by my fears and One of my principal callings in life is to comfort you and reassure you in your feelings of inadequacy. Now, I don't do that to parade our brokenness. That (laughs) makes me puke. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get t-shirts made. (laughs) But I do that so that people understand when Joseph, my oldest son, became reached puberty, I went to Tim Wagner, an elder in our church, you all know, and I was scared out of my wits. Mm. 
I mean, scared out of my wits. And I said, Tim, will you please pray for me? I don't know how to raise a son. And I want men whose wives think if they could just be like David Carell or Jake or Nathan or Tim, I don't care what your wife thinks. Your wife is an idiot. But she's right in wanting you to step up a little bit more, just as much as you have faith for, and realize that regardless of any lies Satan telling you, your children live for your approval. If you do nothing other than constantly approve of them, assuming they're not proud, mm -hmm. all right, telling them they're beautiful, telling them they're handsome, telling them how proud you are of this and that, and meaning it. Well, look, there's one thing that every father has to believe and just get into his head. There is no better father on earth for your children than you because you are the father that mm -hmm. God has given to your children. And so you're the one that they need. There's no better husband for your wife than you. You're the one that she needs. So you have to believe that and then you have to you have to have faith for it and just accept the fact that you are who your kids need. You are who your wife needs. And sins and all, brokenness and all, mm -hmm. you're what they need. And God's made you for the job and so you can have faith that God will give you what you need in those moments and it'll be stupid and sinful and silly and what your kids need. And it's not humiliating to you for, as a man to have your wife tell you what to do and what not to do. I wanted at the beginning of this show to say that my wife didn't like the things I said. Right. And so she sent a text. I forwarded it to Nathan and Jake. And look. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. How are we, gonna, how are we going to get better ourselves if our wives don't criticize us? Mm. How are we gonna raise teenagers if our wives don't tell us what we're doing wrong, and yet do not allow your wife to tell you what is right and wrong? And they're both true. Make sure your wife is telling you what you do that's right and wrong, and don't allow your wife to choose what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. but you, you see, they're both true. Uh, I keep thinking during this episode whether I should tell this, and so I think I'm gonna cloak it a little bit. But I remember one of our children, as they reach puberty, I once made a comment to that child about something. And my wife took me privately and she said to me, don't you ever mention that again. And guess what? I done been a good boy for many years now. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you do need your wives to punish you at times mm -hmm. so that it's so painful that you don't make that mistake again. Does that make sense? Oh, the times where Annie's gotten in my face and said, she is not a boy. Yeah. <laughs> she is not a boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you can't talk at her like that. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Then Comes What was produced by Nathan Alberson and executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alberson as our All Fine Warhorn products. You can send your questions to tcw at warhornmedia.com. That's T as in Tango, C as in Charlie, W as in Whiskey at warhornmedia.com. 